1: Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. We have a debate for you this week and the motion was cancel culture is threatening our freedoms. The debate was part of our live subscription service Intelligence Squared Plus, where for just £5 a month or $6, you can take part and watch along our live debates and ask your questions to the speakers. It's a great way to support Intelligence Squared and learn from some of the most brilliant minds. And if you enjoy this debate, you might enjoy some of the upcoming events on Intelligence Squared Plus, including a big event with John Bolton, Donald Trump's former national security advisor, who he's not exactly on good terms with, let's put it that way, and also a big event with Thomas Friedman, the New York Times columnist. In both of those events, we'll be looking forward to the US presidential election and looking at who will win in Biden versus Trump. So to find out more about those events, go to intelligencesquared.com slash plus. Now, let's go to this week's episode. Thanks to all of you who are watching. Very exciting to be part
2: of this very first live streamed debate on YouTube for Intelligence Squared. So thank you all for watching. If you're watching us live or if you're watching it later on, welcome. The question before us, cancel culture, is threatening our freedoms? It's my view that if 2020 had not been overrun with everything else going on, namely a global pandemic, a US presidential election, a massive economic downturn. I think this might well have been the big issue of 2020, because even with all those huge things going on, this consumes a lot of energy and a lot of debate. And uh, And yet I think it may be one of the first times that we've managed to bring together people to really thrash out these issues. Some say, of course, there is no such thing as cancel culture. Then there are people who say, look, it does exist and it is a huge threat to free speech. And you will notice that a group of very eminent writers recently wrote a collective letter to Harper's magazine in the United States saying that this was a real threat to free speech. There is a new website that's set up by some of those writers, I think, called Persuasion. Then on the other side, there's a group who say, look, it does exist, but it is necessary. It is necessary to protect the uh, marginalized, often marginalized voices and minority voices that have previously been too easily disparaged or cast aside. And that all you, that people are calling cancel culture is merely the voices of people who've had platforms and power for a long time, who can't take a bit of criticism. Now, for my own part, I'm obviously wholly neutral. Tonight, I sit in the chair, but I was glad and am glad to be in the chair for this debate, because this is a question that I approach with an open mind, because I myself wrestle with it. I am a bit undecided on the one hand. I see those images of books being burnt, J.K. Rowling's books being burnt, these images that were shared online last week, and that obviously appalls me with all its historical echoes. And yet, on the other hand, I do ask myself that, you know, if, say, and I I mention him only because I've written about him, if David Irving, the uh, self-styled historian but denier of the Holocaust, was offered a platform, I would want to see that platform withheld. And I would say he should be not allow that platform. Does that mean if I hold that view that I am myself guilty of cancel culture? I don't. And if I'm not right, and that, that wouldn't be the same. Well, what then is the difference between wanting to deny, deny someone like him a platform and those who are accused of cancelling? So as I say, I wrestle with this. I haven't made up my own mind. But today I'm fully in neutral and in the chair. All I want to do is to make sure we have a good and spirited debate. And to do that, we are delighted to have a really stellar panel of speakers tonight in the form of Ian Hersey Ali, Julie Bindle, Billy Bragg, and Kayinde Andrews. And I'm going to be introducing all four of those brilliant speakers more fully momentarily. For now, though, we do have in the results of our first vote on the motion, Uh, that cancel culture is threatening our freedoms. So this gives an indication of your views as you approach this debate. For the motion that, yes, cancel culture is threatening our freedoms, a whopping 73% hold that view. Against the motion, a very small number, just 11%, and undecided, 16%. So, without further ado, we are going to go to hear our speakers' opening speeches. And our first speaker uh, for the motion is a an author, academic, a campaigner on women's rights. She is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and founder of the foundation, the AHA Foundation that bears her name. Her books include Infidel, Nomad, From Islam to America, A Personal Journey Through the Clash of Civilizations*, and Heretic, why Islam Needs a Reformation Now. A warm, if virtual, welcome for Ian Hersey Ali.
3: Jonathan, uh, Jonathan, thank you very much. I'm here tonight to defend the proposition that cancel culture is threatening my freedoms. I say my freedoms because in 1992, I fled my master's house when my father, my master, married me off to his man of choice was to become my new master, I looked for a place to escape. I found it in the Netherlands. You could call it another master's house as the woke exponents of critical race theory do. In their eyes, any country that long ago was complicit in colonialism is to this day, the master's house. But to me, Holland was a home of liberty. I found an oasis of enlightenment. I took jobs. I sought knowledge. I associated with people I liked, many of whom had diverse views. I learned to let go of my prejudices against people of other faiths, gays, unmarried couples and others. I talk of my freedoms with the emphasis on me, the individual, not because I seek to be selfish or narcissistic, but because all the subjugation I endured in Somalia and Saudi Arabia along with every Muslim girl I knew was justified in the name of the collective, the Ummah. Today, to my dismay, I see similar threats to individual liberty, freedom of association and intellectual diversity in council culture. Not long after I moved to the United States, I noticed a change. I was offered an honorary degree at a well-known university. And then to my surprise and embarrassment, my offer was publicly rescinded because of a petition signed by faculty and students who claimed that my views offended them. They did not want to engage or debate. They simply did not want to listen and they didn't want anyone else to listen either. They took away the students' right to have an opportunity to form their own opinion and make their own judgment. I was not alone. There have been 379 disinvitation campaigns at American universities since the year 2000. Nearly half were successful, and that is the tip of the iceberg. It omits the thinkers who were never invited or whose books have quietly been deleted from curriculums. Worse, cancel culture has spread in recent years from campuses to every walk of life, the movies, technology, journalism, corporations, and even elementary and secondary schools. Julie Bindel will tell you of individual instances, many, many of them, of working class women of color without profile been bullied out of their jobs and education. We've also seen the toppling of statues and monuments. To this day, the demands to defund the police, abolish prisons and dismantle our criminal justice system continue in some American cities. We've seen efforts to stunt due process along with ongoing rioting and looting sprees dressed up as peaceful protests and justified as a form of liberation. Such incidents of accusation, groupthink, and punishment remind me too much of the way unfree societies work, societies like the one where I grew up. We need to cancel cancel culture before it cancels us all. But where exactly did cancel culture come from? Cancel culture is the tool of a fairly new creed, and this creed has many labels. You may have had such concepts as identity politics, intersectionality, or critical race theory. Helen Pluckrose, the British editor in chief of the online magazine ARIO, and the American mathematician. James Lindsay have just published a new book called Cynical Theories, in which they make it crystal clear what council culture is and where it comes from. Academic departments that gradually gain social power. I urge you to read it. Council culture is one manifestation of critical theory. It's a tool used by the adherents of this cult to silence anyone who questions their orthodoxy and the methods they deploy to achieve their goals. What are their goals? They say they seek to dismantle and ultimately destroy liberal order. They fundamentally oppose the liberal, democratic, free market society we live in. They segment and view people on the basis of immutable characteristics like race, gender, and ability status. In particular, they have an animus against the white heterosexual man, claiming that he is disposed of relentless exploitation of not only fellow humans, but also the planet. In their eyes, the white male is relentless, deadly, and utterly irredeemable and any means are justified if the end is to overthrow the social order and unseat his dominance. The revolution adherents of this ideology aim to achieve the reverse of liberating because the root of their movement is deeply hostile to individual and cognitive liberty. It seeks absolute conformity. It is merciless to those whom they think have had and it offers no path to redemption or forgiveness.
2: I'm going to have to stop you there, Ian Harsley. I'm so sorry, we, 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 you've gone over the allocated time. Uh, our first speaker against the motion, a reminder that the motion is cancel culture is threatening our freedoms. To speak against that motion is... The, a singer-songwriter, political campaigner, one of the few people who's had a number one hit single and been the subject of a South Bank show and appeared on stage at Wembley and curated The Left Field at Glastonbury. He's the author of three non-fiction books, including most recently The Three Dimensions of Freedom. A warm welcome for Billy Bragg. Thank you very much, Jonathan, and thank
4: you very much uh, to Intelligence Squared for offering me this platform. Is cancel culture a threat to our freedoms? Well, in order to address that question, we first have to look at what cancel culture is and how it occurs. It's broadly defined as withdrawing support for public figures and companies after they've done or said something considered objectionable or or offensive. Now, this is not a new phenomenon. People have been vociferously complaining about views expressed by individuals since time immemorial. Socrates was sentenced to death in ancient Greece for telling people what they didn't want to hear. But the proponents of cancel culture say that what is happening now is of an altogether different magnitude. Angry mobs stirred up by online campaigns are terrorising individuals who've done nothing more than express an inoffensive opinion. Now, a recent example of such virtual vitriol was the outrage over the performance of the diversity dance troupe on Britain's Got Talent earlier this month. Their routine tackled racism and paid tribute to the Black Lives Matter movement. And it drew over 24,000 complaints to Ofcom, the the TV regulator. This is the highest amount of complaints ever recorded for a TV programme. The troupe and its leader, Ashley Banjo, was subject to a barrage of racial abuse and threats on social media. Now, on the face of this, this would appear to be a prime example of cancel culture. You might expect a tabloid such as the Daily Mail to be up in arms that a hateful mob was trying to silence diversity's freedom of expression. Well, the Mail did produce 20 articles about the controversy, but not once did they use the term cancel culture to either describe or condemn what was happening to the diversity troupe. Instead, they used their platform to stoke the anger of their readers. Ofcom found that only 4% of the complaints it had received came in the wake of the original broadcast. The other 96 had come in the following weeks, driven by the likes of the Daily Mail. Now, if cancel culture really was a threat to our freedoms, you would expect it to apply across the board. The Mail are not shy about calling out cancel culture when they see it. Yet something, who knows what it might have been, blinded them on this issue. And this is not an isolated case. Over the past month, the Mail have promoted boycotts of Ben and Jerry's ice cream because the company tweeted supports for Channel Crossing asylum seekers and promoted a campaign to sack BBC Songs of Praise producer Cat Lewis, who called for Rule Britannia to be rewritten to remove its imperial connotations. Now, any cursory review of recent high-profile cases of cancel culture will reveal a troubling pattern. The victims of this trend are always defenders of the status quo. But you say, those who signed the recent Harper's letter decrying cancel culture come from across the board. You could never describe Noam Chomsky as a defender of the status quo. This is true, but sadly many good liberal voices believe that free speech is the ultimate guarantor of individual freedom and thus feel compelled to stand beside bigots and charlatans in its defense. But not all freedoms are positive. In a time when too many engaged in social media discourse appear to enjoy kicking the player rather than the ball, we desperately need a framework in which we can all speak our minds without fear of personal abuse or physical threat. No one deserves to be the target of an online hate mob, but in order to stop such behaviour, we have to accept that free speech has limits. Last month, a new social media site appeared specifically for those who opposed the moderation policies of Twitter, Called Parler, P E R P A R L E R. it promised free expression with no censorship. No sooner had it got off the ground than founder John Matsey was forced to initiate what he called a few basic rules. The first of which was, and I quote from his tweet, When you disagree with someone, posting pictures of your fecal matter in the comment section will not be tolerated. Now this brings a whole new meaning to the term shitposting but also illustrates why free speech alone is not enough to safeguard our liberty. It relies too heavily on the assumption that people will act in good faith and that rational argument can resolve all disputes. Sadly, that is not the tone of the times we live in. Politicians and their surrogates have realized that stoking division is an easier means of gaining support than seeking consensus. In such a toxic environment, A slavish dedication to the right of free speech above all is somewhat of a liability. From Donald Trump's Twitter feed to the depths of the QAnon conspiracy, the right to say what you want, whenever you want, to whoever you want with no comeback, is undermining our freedoms. Like the term political correctness before it, cancel culture is a trope used by reactionaries to police the limits of social change. It allows the proponents of white male supremacy to portray themselves as the victims of discrimination, undermining the rights of the real victims of structural inequality. If you believe cancel culture really represents an insidious threat to our freedoms, making it impossible for free-thinking people to speak their minds, then perhaps you can explain how someone like Boris Johnson, who has made racist comments about black people and Muslim women, for which he has never apologised, gets paid hundreds of thousands of pounds to express those views weekly in a national newspaper column and is able to rise to the highest office in the land.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much. And no need for me to ding my glass there because you were came in very nicely into time. Let's move to our second speaker for the motion. Again, a reminder, our motion is cancel culture is threatening our freedoms. We heard Hase Ali earlier to make that case. And now our second speaker for that argument is a feminist journalist, author and broadcaster who has written extensively on rape, on domestic violence, on sexual violence, prostitution and trafficking. She writes regularly for The Guardian, for Unheard, for The Telegraph and The Sunday Times magazine. And her latest book is The Pimping of Prostitution, Abolishing the Sex Work Myth. Speaking for the motion that cancel culture is threatening our freedoms is Julie Bindle.
0: Thank you, Jonathan. It's the first time and possibly the last that I'll ever be called a defender of the status quo, bearing in mind that I'm a long-term victim of so-called cancel culture, which I would rather call being silenced. Billy, with respect, has been rather selective with his examples. So I hope that I'm going to redress the balance here by telling you about what happens to feminists fighting male violence. The usual denial of cancel culture is that it's merely public figures being criticised on Twitter for things they've said, when in fact, for feminists fighting male violence who are victims of bullying and silence, they face demands that they be sacked, risk losing their homes, education, reputations and livelihoods. It's said that merely influential people, this is merely about influential people unaccustomed to being questioned. Well, I have no interest in wealthy white men complaining about their rights to be racist and misogynistic being curtailed, none at all. For feminists such as myself, doing unpaid work to campaign to end male violence against women women and girls, this is about being hounded, bullied, threatened and harassed, mainly by men, being publicly disinvited from events to speak of rape, prostitution and domestic violence. Having organisers initially very excited about the event, Apologise online, publicly, for inviting you in the first place, having been ground down by constant phone calls, emails and threats to funders, often by white men, perhaps identifying occasionally as non-binary in order to mask their institutionalised power and privilege. In the publicity for this event, the position of my opponents is described as this. What we are witnessing is activism by and on behalf of marginalised groups who are seeking to redress the structural inequalities that have historically held them back. Really? Why then are the vast majority of victims, feminists and lesbians, many of whom are of colour and working class, most of whom you've never heard of before, all of whom are progressive seeking to protect the rights we have fought for as women? Helen Steele is a legendary environmental and anti-capitalist activist. 30 years ago, this week, Helen was a co-defendant in the libel case brought by fast food giant McDonald's after they distributed leaflets critical of the company. Helen has also campaigned publicly over an undercover policing scandal after it was discovered that police officers had infiltrated social and environmental justice campaigns and had deceived activist women into relationships. But this counted for nothing when in 2017 she was hounded from an anarchist book fair by a baying mob of trans activists, all of it on film, Helen had stepped in to defend other women who were distributing leaflets opposed to the proposed Gender Recognition Act. Then take feminist filmmaker from South India, Vaishnavi Sundar, who's worked with marginalised women all of her life and successfully fought for women to be able to access morning after contraception in the state of Tamil Nadu. Having spent years crowdfunding to make a film about women's legal rights in the workplace, she found herself deplatformed across New York City from human rights organisations that had agreed to show her film. Her crime? Challenging extreme transgender orthodoxy on Twitter, which amounted to saying that women have a right to single-sex services. The film had nothing to do with trans issues. Lucy Massoud is a black lesbian and former firefighter. After being interviewed on Radio 4 about the necessity of keeping women-only toilets and changing facilities, which the women in the fire service fought for for years... The Fire Brigade was deluged by trans activists and their allies demanding she was sacked. One tweeted to their followers that she should be burned. This was in response to Lucy being re-elected as LGBT secretary for the Fire Brigade Union. Trans activists stood outside Grenfell Tower, the scene where 72 men, women and children burned to death and let off smoke bombs and waved around dildos, all in an effort to stop the meeting she had organised from going ahead, because we were objecting at that meeting, held outside Grenfell Tower, to the calls to expel women from the party that refused the trans women are women indoctrination. Selina Todd, who does more to celebrate the lives and activism of working class women than any other UK-based academic, was banned from speaking at a conference last year, celebrating sorry, this year the 50th anniversary of the first Women's Liberation Movement event. Linda Bellos, activist, lesbian, originator of Black History Month, was among the speakers at a feminist event which was cancelled over fears of violence from trans rights activists. Karen Ingala Smith, the founder of Counting Dead Women, who lists every woman and girl killed by men on an annual basis, and this is read out in Parliament, so is on Hansard, was refused permission to rejoin the Labour Party because she is hostile to gender identity. Of course she is. She's a feminist. Comparing these women to bigots for fighting to keep single-sex spaces for the victims of rape and domestic abuse is ignorance at its finest. You definitely are a misogynist if you turn away from the daily insults on social media telling such women to choke on my girl dick, die in a grease fire, or punch a turf. As I wrote to Toby Young when he invited me to join the advisory council of the free speech union, I declined. I said, I'm not actually a supporter of blanket free speech it's about being disinvited once invited it's about who gets invited who gets to speak and who doesn't and the humiliation that comes with that people actually call it no platforming but that's really inaccurate i have no issue i wrote to toby young whatsoever with not being invited to speak at places it's them rescinding their invitation because of bowing to pressure from the knobheads that's humiliation that is damage to reputation
2: One more minute. You're in your last minute,
3: Julie.
0: I have a platform, not because I'm rich or world famous. I have that profile because I'm a feminist campaigner that's always spoken out. The fact that I can write in the national newspaper about being disinvited and hounded out of events is used against me when, in fact, I'm prevented from doing my unpaid activist work. And I can write about it in the newspaper because I'm a journalist. In 2018, every attempt on the planet was made by trans activists and allies to get me disinvited from the working class library in Salford, where I was due to give a talk about growing up as a working class lesbian in the northeast of England. As usual, nothing to do with transgender issues. You may think that silencing and cancelling a few bitches like me, J.K. Rowling and other high-profile women doesn't count because we can always get our voices heard elsewhere. But this treatment also serves as a warning to younger women at the beginning of their political lives to shut the fuck up or the same will happen to them. The vast majority of the victims of this horrendous misogynistic bullying are women campaigning against male violence. The likes of Toby Young and David Starkey are red herrings in this debate. What I and countless other women have seen is swathed. Of so called progressive men who hate feminists, but instead of being clear and honest about it, they call us TERFs. Nothing less than total capitulation will satisfy them, but that's never going to happen.
2: Okay, can we th- thank you very much, Julie Bindle. Um, again, I'm only in, appearing to interrupt when people go over the six minute mark,
1: there is nothing else in my decision.
2: Our last speaker, Against the Motion, reminder that we're discussing cancel culture is threatening our freedom. Speaking Against the Motion is the Professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University and a regular opinion writer for The Guardian and editor there of the series Blackness in Britain. He was part of the team that launched the first black studies degree in Europe and is the author of Back to Black, retelling black radicalism, for the 21st century. And coming up, a new book, The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. Our final speaker, speaking
5: out against the motion, Keen de Andrews. Oh, so Hi, good evening. Um, I was happy to hear that Julie did recognise that trans activists have been a key Perhaps people who are kind of calling out for for difference in this debate, but to frame that as the same as male violence or sexual violence who are bullying bullying women it just it shows you the problem with this side of the debate that what we have here is look nobody would deny that social media particularly and people can bully you and people can push you off and people can push you around and people act really badly and misogyny is a bad thing. nobody would deny any of it what's being what 's being forcefully argued against is this idea of comf- of a uh, Cancel culture, which frankly is a confection. It conflates all these things. Listen to Julie and listen to Ian, and I'm, I'm I'm terrified. We've got the, We've got we've got male violence. We've got sexual violence. We've got critical race theorists. We've got people against liberal democracy. I mean, this whole panic. We got about this idea that all these people are unified in this cancelling culture. It's frankly nonsense. And Billy Bragg is right. that The point of this is actually to silence people. Ironically, the free speeches are actually trying to, to condemn free speech. It is not for me to say to trans activists what they think is appropriate or inappropriate. It is for them to, to have that right to say it. And if, and if the universities want to listen to them, guess what? The universities have the right to listen to them. Nobody has the automatic right to a platform. Nobody at all. And the question we're really talking about here is who puts limits on free speech because there have always been limits on free speech and there will always be limits on free speech. And just another example of this, this complete confection is, if you honestly believe that universities are, are like paragons of left-wing virtue, then you really have not been to a university in a, recently. I mean, I work a bid for universities. They're the most exclusionary, racist, misogynistic places that possibly exist. And the debate, we kind of imagine, we kind of created this false ideal where it's all left-wing Marxism. You're more likely to find a Marxist in the pub than you are at your local university. So it's, it, what this really is, is about the dominant and unfortunately there have been people who maybe don't feel like you are on the side of the dominant but because you've kind of embraced this cancel culture idea and the number of the people who signed that Harper's Bazaar letter felt bad about it afterwards they were like well actually maybe this was a bad idea because we understand that the project of cancel culture the idea of cancel culture is actually hell-bent on um on on shutting down debate and this where it comes to the question of when we're talking about freedom whose freedom are we referring to are we talking to the freedom of David Starkey, who should have been cancelled 10 years ago, frankly, for his comments on the riots? Or Katie Hopkins, who's, and we talk about cancer, she's been going, I don't know, I if it should have been shot again, should have been cancelled a long time ago. R. Kelly, I've heard somebody said R. Kelly was a victim of cancel culture. R. Kelly's been a predator of young women for decades. So, I mean, this is the, when, what's happened here is you do have, and this is, sir, this is about the dominant. This is mostly about men a lot a lot of the time too, who haven't been challenged, right? And there's voices coming through, and like I said, they don't always come through in, in the in the in the nicest of way. as Billy pointed out before, this is not new. The only really thing that's new about this is that you can hear those voices because of social media, because of democratization of public space, you can hear them. And then the other thing is news that people are actually f- for for a change listening. The question is, who is it that decides what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate in this? And I'd also go back and give you an example because I think sometimes we miss the, we, we really miss the point here. Racial science up until relatively recently. I mean, right. Re- the idea that, uh, black people and Jews aren't, aren't really human beings was that was being taught in universities up until the uh, second world war. That was a pretty mainstream idea. Now we would literally be saying, if we were having this discussion in 1930s Britain, you'd have had. Activists on Twitter saying, "Look, it's terrible. It's, um, this racial science is terrible. We shouldn't be doing this." And everybody be complaining, saying, "Oh, look at this cancel culture. They want to shut down the university's Left wing." And we, we're missing the. That's the parallel that's happening here, right? You have so much problematic stuff coming out from the mainstream, and the difference is now you have people who have voices to say, "Actually, no, this is um, problematic." So the question is, who decides the limits of speech? And I would posit that the people to decide to limit a speech is far better for the crowds for the audience for the masses not the mob the masses to decide than it is for those who've been for far too comfortable in their ivory towers uh, with elite privilege and then i mean the final point i would make here is there's a deep fragility to this idea. I mean, i certainly, I know Billy's probably experienced social media pylons. I can't tweet anything without getting horrendous abuse. I mean, all literally all the time. Uh, who's the most, the MP that, and probably the public figure in the UK gets the most abuse is Diane Abbott. I don't hear Diane Abbott crying about cancel culture. Cause guess what? If you look like me, we're kind of used to this. This is that we understand this. We experience this. This is a day to day. And what, and any, what you tend to find with those in power is when there are challenges to the status quo, it's kind of breakdown. It's like a meltdown. Who, who can, who? Why should we be being criticised? Why should we have to put up with this? Well, we've been putting up with this forever. I still put up with this, and I'm not ke- complaining about cancel culture, but that also does tell you there's a double standard here about cancel culture. And the final part I really because I think this is a quite an important point here. The, the the metaphors here are deeply offensive. The idea of the mob canceling. You know, the mob, the mob is a real thing in history. The mob has really cancelled people, lynching in the United, in the United States that was canceling. Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street, where literally dirt ran and burnt that killed thousands of people that was cancelling in the uk we 've had race riots race riots are not when black people rebel against the police or other things race riots are when usually white racist communities rampage through black and brown communities and cancel those that 's the mob so let 's drop this mob. Discussion because this is not this is deeply offensive to what we're talking about. And again, you use you can see how those metaphors are being used to defend very, 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 very problematic ideas. Look, no one's saying everything is perfect, but the idea of cancel culture, the the, the what the 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 work that it's doing is to maintain the status quo, is to defend the powerful, and it's to shut down those who have rightly having their voices of dissent.
2: Thank you, uh, Kinder, and to thanks to all four of our speakers for setting out their stools so fluently. We're moving now into questions from you, people who are watching at home. Now, lots of questions have come in. I've got a couple of mine which I just wanted to follow up on, one for each side, as it were, in our debate. To you first, Ian Hersey Alley. Julie Bindle made clear that she's not an absolutist on free speech. She doesn't think absolutely everyone has a right to a platform. And I wondered, in your case, if you do think there is a line... You know, I threw out at the beginning, I mentioned David Irving as a, as a figure who's often cited in this context. But, you know, are there some people that you would, as it were, cancel, who you would deny a platform to, who you think should not be invited to public platforms? And if there are, if you can even name one person who fits into that category, aren't we then just into a discussion about where one draws the line? And as Kayinde Andrews was just saying before, who draws that line? Ian Hirsi Ali.
3: I uh, So, Jonathan, uh, I think in order to answer that question, you have to understand that we're now talking about two competing philosophies. I adhere to the philosophy of classical liberalism, where, yes, free speech is the right to offend and it's protected by law. And if you don't like what people say, yes, you can, in a private setting, disinvite them or cancel them or what have you. Um, but it is protected by the law. Now, cancel culture is rooted in a completely different philosophy, a philosophy that traces back to postmodernism, the critical justice theory, and they have a notion that only they have uh, the way to, and the path to social justice. And if you disagree with them, then they cancel you, but not only in a private form, they also seek authorities, university authorities, the government, everything that they have to shut you down and to silence you. And I think it is we, we, what we're really debating are these two different philosophies. And- All
2: right. I understand. But would would there be some people who you would want to see on the receiving end of exactly that kind of pressure where they were, you know, the university who invited this person X was told uh, urged not to invite them? I give you again my David Irving example. Or would you say, no, he, however obnoxious the speech you would want that person to get that invitation, to uh, uphold that invitation and have that platform without all the pylons and criticism.
3: I would say I'm a fan of John Stuart Mill. If we have to hear what the other person has to say, and if you disagree with it, that is fine. If you don't like it, you can walk away. But I am absolutely against um, the efforts to silence individuals. Again, you know, if someone is saying something, you or balls or what have you, let them prove themselves by doing it. Also, you have to respect the opinion of the audience. Let the audience decide for itself what they want to hear and what they don't. Let them process it i don 't think it 's up to the elites to shut down other voices Thank okay.
2: You. OK, uh, thank you. L- let me just put one. There's there's lots that have come in, but I just uh, specific to you, Billy Bragg. Uh Keena just spoke there about social media pylons and he said, look, anyone who looks like him or Dianne Abbott, they're just used to this. This comes with the territory. If you say your opinion, you yeah, you're going to get some horrible messages on Twitter. Is that all this is, and and therefore we can sort of take it with a pinch of salt and, to, you know, or would you recognise that the treatment of, for example, and her name has come up, J.K. Rowling, where people are literally burning books and sending the kind of abuse that I think you heard Julie Bindle quoting... Is that something worse? Or do you say, look, come on, you know, grow up, get a thicker skin. If you're in the public square, this kind of flack is going to happen. And it's not you're not being cancelled. It's just a bit unpleasant.
4: No, 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 no. uh, The the things that Julie described are completely unacceptable. Nobody involved in a debate should have to face that, whichever side of the debate they're coming from. The problem is with social media discourse, there are no rules. We have no rules. All we have is John Stuart Mill. John Stuart Mill was never the subject of a Twitter pylon. And if he had been, I bet he would have changed his mind slightly. Because the situation we find ourselves now is that we are unable to not just have free speech. We also need to have equality in which the person you're talking to, you respect their their right to say what they want to say. But also we need to have accountability as well so that people can't just come in and... Um, attack you and uh take you down you should we should find some way of getting new parameters online whereby we can dis sort of discuss very, very difficult things, very contentious issues, but in a, in a way that's deliberative, rather than just going straight to the pylons. And this applies both sides. I mean, free speech, equality, accountability, this is not a left or right-wing argument. This is a, a, an argument for a new set of parameters around which we can talk to one another, because Twitter has arrived, social media has arrived, without us having the understanding that although I'm sitting in my house on my own, I'm actually talking to thousands of people right now. And what I say is responded by uh, the people who respond to that are not always picking up the nuance of what I'm saying. In some ways, the curse of Twitter, the curse of social media is that perception always trumps intention.
2: All right, just because we've got you here, a very quick one uh, that was uh, addressed directly to you from one somebody watching said, should we cancel your hero, Billy, Elvis Costello, from the radio and brand him a racist? because of his use of the N-word. And I presume the, the what viewer is quoting the song Oliver's Army there. On that, what do you think?
4: No, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, Costello famously used the N-word in reference to uh, Ray Charles and was, was vilified in the press over that. People still remember it. People still talk about it. But he survived, you know, as, as celebrities often do. It's those people who, who don't have celebrity that are, that are pushed around and beaten up online who need protection rather than celebrities.
2: Julie Bindle, question again that's come in. How exactly has J.K. Rowling been cancelled when she's a, the questioner says, millionaire? I think she's technically a billionaire who still has many supporters. That's not, I think the viewer is thinking that doesn't really sound like the person's been cancelled. Big new book out this week, etc.
0: Absolutely, she hasn't been cancelled. She has been vilified, bullied, harassed and defamed. And, you know, just because somebody has wealth, It doesn't mean that we can just treat them like dirt when in fact her crimes, which in my mind don't exist, what she has said about transgender people is perfectly fine within the realms of protecting the human rights of all oppressed minorities. And if you look at what white male journalists have put out, either in defence of her or their own views on this issue, they Many of them are anti-trans bigots and yet they haven't seemed to come after these men in the way that they have for women daring to say things such as trans women are trans women as they have with, um, with Chimamanda, for example, who has been called a bigot and screamed at during her book events. And women have to say barely anything whatsoever except for We need our sex-based rights and we need women-only services when we are abused and escaping male violence. Now, if you think that that's acceptable, because that's what Rowling has said, then we need to have a look at what her male counterparts have said and ask the question, why do they get away with actual anti-trans bigotry, misogyny, racism? Because so many of them do. Why are they coming after the feminists?
2: Kane, did you want to respond to what you've heard
5: from uh, Julie Bindle there? I think I think the question you have to think is I mean for Julie this is JK Rowling is perfectly fine. Obviously, a number of people, and it's not just men, there's lots of trans activists who believe it's not perfectly fine. And what they're saying is, look, this isn't perfectly fine. And actually, maybe, I you know, other JK rally thing, I think, released a book where the there's, there's a serial killer who's a trans man. I mean, I think that, that I mean, when you start to do this, like I mean, did that oh. not happen? Did this not happen? This that? But my point is, it isn't for me or you to decide what's acceptable. It isn't, right? If you, It's for people to have their voice and to have their head there. And I fully, I fully agree that some people go way too far. I've had people, I have people call my work to get me fired all the time but that's just a reality that we live with because we have freedom of speech i mean it's actually ironic i'm actually making the freedom of speech argument and the people can criticize and jk Rowling's gonna be fine but guess what she's fine she hasn't been canceled like i said it's a made-up idea
2: just on a fact check level just because otherwise people said that I don't think that is what appears in the book. The articles have been written by people who've read and reviewed the book. it did the circular isn't as you've described, and, and the the row isn't there so Ben Honan writes Kenda, just since we've got you saying them says quoting you says Kenda says the masses should dictate who's allowed to speak. should there be checks and balances for this, or is he happy that in a way, the decision is left to the loudest voices on social media.
5: Well, no, the decision isn't left to the loudest voices on social media. So, for example, if you listen to the loudest voices on social media anytime time I appear on television, I would not have a job. So that's not what happens. Nobody just gives in to a massive crowd. People say things and then institutions <laughs> institutions decide. Activists, organisations decide. And if they decide that they don't want to invite me somewhere, I'll go, OK, and I won't go. I'll go somewhere else. I mean, look, this is when you democratise, the, the alternative is... That what happened previously up to this point, which is those who run those institutions, who are white, who are male, who are elite, they decide, and that's why the discourse has been so bad for so long.
2: Okay, I just, I just because, Ju, hold on, just because Julie was laughing, I want to hear from Julie Bindel, and then Ian Hirsali was trying to get in, and then Billy, I've got another question for you.
0: There are women, including black women, including working class women, lesbians, who are human rights defenders, who have lost their jobs, who have lost their homes, who have lost their. College courses that they've, in one instance, come over from almost the other side of the world to to take up. There are women who have become homeless and jobless because the mob rule succeeded. And I'm sorry, but this isn't just online. I've been physically attacked publicly when I'm speaking, ironically, about male violence towards women. Never the transgender issue, which I do not go out and speak about. And what, how can you justify that? Of course we give in to the mob rule, but we don't give in to feminists saying that we are sick and tired of the misogyny. It's strange how it's it's always a capitulation to those trans activists and allies who behave like a men's rights movement and who do not represent the majority of transgender people, but they are obeying mob and we are
3: their targets.
2: Iain Hasiali, you did want to come in. Briefly, if you can, just so I can put a question that's come in for Billy Bragg.
3: I wanted to come in and emphasise again where I started this evening, which is this distinction between the individual and individual rights that we think of as universal versus groups. And I think the reason why we keep talking about mobs is because this new cult that I was describing using cancel culture as a tool... Used to uh, promote uh, a view on what they think is social justice. And if, as the individual, you come out and you say, well, I think there's something going on here, then you are cancelled. J.K. Rowling is obviously not, she's not just a billionaire and an accomplished woman, but think about the people whom she is trying to give a voice, those individuals who... Because our society is now being segmented into these groups, as a woman, as a young girl, a teenager, you are being forced to undergo certain hormonal and surgical, um, uh, uh, very, 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 you know, it's terrible to to contemplate. J.K. Rowland is trying to give a voice to that individual, the individual who goes to the bathroom and finds herself threatened, the individual woman who is in a prison and is raped. We can't talk about those individuals because every time we raise our voices, and we need free speech for that, then this cult comes along and says, you're transphobic. If I talk about what is happening to Muslim women, female genital mutilation, honor killings, and all the rest of it, I'm accused of Islamophobia. So then they use a group stamp to put down and cancel and silence the individual and the individual rights and individual human rights. The philosophy of liberalism protects all of that. The philosophy of the cancel culture okay. and its <coughs> cancels it.
2: Okay, Now, but there you are with the, the um, branding of the Hoover Institution right behind you. You're on this debate tonight. You have many platforms, I think, books coming out, etc. In what sense has someone like you been cancelled. I've
3: been cancelled and I, I I've, of course I, I t- I'll tell you this I never thought it was a threat to our freedoms. I think that this year because this year I'm seeing how big this thing has become the brainwashing of our children from K to 12 the thing has come out of the universities it's more than annoying just now it is really, we are now entering a phase where we are seeing the closing of the young minds and okay. if it's totalitarian in its thinking, totalitarian in its actions. And we would be so complacent and so naive to let this thing go on.
2: Okay, thank you. Time is running out. We've got only very few minutes left, but two questions have come in. They're related to you directly, Billy Bragg. David Craig asks, does Billy Bragg believe someone should be cancelled for suggesting there are two biological sexes, male and female? And then a second question from uh, Jane Ayres, who says, why should ordinary women often working in academia risk losing their jobs? This picks up what Julie Bindle was saying, risk losing their jobs for speaking up for women's rights and for existing equality law. But first up, should someone be cancelled for suggesting there are two biological sexes, male and female, which I think was the argument J.K. Rowling made?
4: Yep. The problem The problem with this um, question for me is I don't believe there's such a thing as being cancelled. I believe it's... a uh chimera used by the far right to keep people quiet and in their place so it's, I'm not really able to answer that particular question but with regard to people losing their jobs no i don't think that's right that people should lose their jobs because of what they believe the problem is that many people have contracts which they can be fired at will by their employers and that's where the, that's where the problem comes up and in regard to anybody who is fired for what they believe in i believe that should go to an industrial tribunal but having said that and here's a really important thing if you're organizing an event in which you're putting across a, an idea, Julie. I mean, I might suggest, you know, at one of your events, you know, to point out misogyny and to, to combat male violence. And and the 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 guy in the sound crew in the middle of it walks on stage and makes a misogynist sort of speech. You're totally within your rights to then say, well, I'm not working with that arsehole again. You know, so there is a, there is a situation in which. A person's actions, what they say in the public domain, specifically the public domain, has a, uh, an effect on your the position that you've taken and what you're trying to represent and your reputation. So you are you are in that situation within your rights to say, "I'm not going to work with that person again." I know you're not literally firing them. You are saying, "Well, that, no, I'm not that guy's a misogynist. I'm not working with him." That you would do that, would you?
0: I think that's an entirely different scenario than being invited. Well, I'm just asking you if you well would. then I'll answer. Yes, of course I would. I'd say to him, "I don't wish to work with you, and your views are abhorrent." But this is entirely different from being invited to speak about countering male no, violence no. and then being uh, disinvited uh, yeah. and being called a bigot and a Nazi. Yeah,
4: yeah, I agree. And I, was, that, I wasn't addressing that question. I was addressing the question of whether someone should get fired for what they believe in. And I think this is this is one of the problems with all of this debate is the lack of nuance the lack of nuance that we're, we're in a situation where the culture war has come along and it's everything's black and white, everything's them and us. It's impossible for us to sit down and have a straightforward debate in which we recognise there are different, varied situations in which we try and apply these ideas in. And, and everything comes down to those, you know, 280 characters.
2: Thank you. We are, fittingly, uh, out of time for that section, our Q&A section. And thank you to all the people who wrote in. It's such a shame we couldn't get to all of them. But let's use this, we're going to have a minute summing up from each of you, and we're going to go in the reverse order that we did with the opening speeches. I'm going to try and ping my glass after one minute, but if you don't hear me, I may have to start saying ding, ding, ding. But let's begin with you, Keinde Andrews, and see if you can summarise in a, in, a, in a minute your closing argument for why you do not believe that cancel culture is threatening our freedom.
5: So I want to stress that neither me nor Billy are arguing that people don't get harassed, people don't get bullied, people aren't victims of violence. These things all happen. What we are saying is that cancel culture, yes, there is, that's a, that's a bogeyman. That's a myth. There is no cult. There is no mob coming after you. The whole idea of cancel culture is to shut down the freedoms of those who are oppressed. That's the purpose of it. And it comes about because we're in a moment where we have a more democratic public space where people can be challenged on their views and people can say, no, that's not perfectly fine. We don't agree. And that, and that, and so cancel culture at the purpose of it, the point of it is actually to the idea of cancel culture is against our freedoms. The cancel culture itself is a complete bogeyman and a myth.
2: Thank you. Our second, and admirably brief, our second of summing up speaker is going to be in one minute from you, Julie Bindle.
0: This is not about cancel culture. This is about being harassed and hounded for having feminist views within this whole debate that has got lost. Because as I said earlier, I have no interest in David Starkey, or any white racist man, or anyone with offensive views, weeping crocodile tears about how they're not allowed to espouse those offensive views. But if you just took one minute to look at why so many feminists have been arrested, sacked, hounded and driven to terrible states of mental ill health, you would see that all they are doing is trying to protect those spaces that we develop for the simple reason that until men stop raping and killing and abusing women, we need those spaces. It wouldn't matter if that wasn't the case. So you have to take that separately from those Toby Youngs and those David Starkeys and any of the other people that are being, as my good friend Rachel Moran says, handed their arse for actually being told that they are this. their time is up with these offensive public views.
2: Thank you. To sum up, making the case against the motion that cancel culture is threatening our freedoms in one minute. Billy Bragg. I'm not sure we've come much closer to
4: defining actually what cancel culture constitutes. Is it online abuse? If so, then let's call it that and have a debate about how we can hold bad faith actors to account for their behaviour. Is it people getting fired for expressing an opinion? If so, then let's talk about strengthening workplace rights so that employers are not able to fire at will. Is it people feeling admonished by the criticism they receive for simply expressing their views? Well, how can it be when it's merely the result of those who disagree with you exercising their own freedom of expression? And provided they're not abusive, and I must stress that abusive behavior is not acceptable. Threats are not acceptable. You must respect the fact that they have every right to criticize you. Is cancel culture a genuine threat to our freedoms? Evidence suggests that it is applied in too partisan a manner to threaten the rights of everyone in society. And to argue otherwise is unfortunately to give legitimacy to those who are seeking to push back against Black Lives Matter, Me Too and other movements struggling to hold the powerful to account.
2: Okay, thank you. And the final minute, summing up from you for the motion that cancel culture is threatening our freedoms, Ian Harasi Ali.
3: Well, tonight I ask you to defend the motion that council culture is a threat to our freedoms and I ask you to be brave. Please stand up to the mob. Don't change, your, exchange your liberty for misery and loneliness. Um, council culture is rooted in a philosophy that takes advantage of power, language and knowledge. They see our society only in relationship to one another and, and the only prism is through power. They pollute our language and they pollute our knowledge. And I ask you to vote tonight for critical thinking. I ask you to vote tonight against council culture. It's an opportunity to repudiate nastiness, bitterness, and divisiveness and move toward genuine inclusivity, freedom and belief of that and belief and dialogue. Thank you.
2: Thank you, and thanks to all our speakers for summing up so concisely. There's just a couple more questions that, are, that people did send in. I wonder, but just put this to you, Julie Bindle, first of all, whether is perhaps cancel culture, as we're calling it, not something that is almost part of human nature, to want to silence and ostracise ideologies that threaten our own point of view? And that question came in from somebody called 20 Faces.
0: I think that's probably right. But what we have now is a tsunami of misogyny within culture that women and girls are having to face all in the the name of you know somebody else's rights which happen to conflict with ours feminists have a long tradition of supporting uh, any person that suffers uh, any institutional oppression we understand class as a structure we understand it as a sex class we understand it when it comes uh, to other institutionalized oppressions but at the moment Feminists and in, lesbians in particular are being monstered and vilified as though we literally are Nazis and bigots when what we're trying to do is protect the rights that we have fought for for decades.
2: Let me put one to you, um, Cain Andrews, that came in from Angus. Byrne, who and I thought I think this is interesting, as Billy Bragg said, we maybe are bundling two things together here: the online abuse phenomenon and then the denial and rescinding of invitations and platforms in if In terms of talking about the latter category, Angus Ben says, "Is there a law about inciting racial hatred? Obviously there is, and would that not define the scope for denying a platform? In other words, if a David Starkey or a Katie Hopkins people you mentioned have broken the law on inciting racial hatred, you then yes. Of course, those people should be denied a platform. But anything less than that, maybe the Angus is suggesting then you just let that pass and they are allowed a platform. What do you think? Well, no, it? I
5: think one, the fact there are laws about this tells us there is certainly limits and it's interesting where they get set, but that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, people get invited, don't get invited. The fact that I haven't been invited to many places is, is a version of no platforming, right? The institutions decide who they want to invite and decide who they don't want to invite. And certainly they shouldn't be inviting people who many, many of their constituencies find offensive. I mean, particularly with neoliberal regime of students and customers. If, if you invite a speaker to the university and the students say, meh. Maybe not. Maybe that's, how you should. Maybe, maybe that's a better barometer of response than one or two academics think it's a good person to invite.
4: Yeah, this is the famous free market of, uh, of opinion, isn't it, that we hear so much about. It's a free market until the left get their foot in the door and all of a sudden, hang on a minute, this is not a free market anymore. We need to keep these people out. You know, in the end, uh, opinions have to face off against one another. And this is how we move forward. There's a new generation out there for whom accountability is more important than free speech. And I think you can see that in the fact that the biggest movements in the, 20, in the 21st century have been accountability movements. They've been Black Lives Matter. There have been Me Too. They've been Extinction Rebellion. This is what excites young people, holding the world uh, to account for their problems. And I think it's this, this uh, clash, what? this clash of, of ideologies that causes And And
2: where do you yourself stand? Do you value accountability more than free speech?
4: My, me? Yes. I believe there needs to be a balance between free speech. Free speech has got to be the foundation of a liberal society, fundamentally. But sometimes the balance goes too far in favour of free speech and we accept people being abusive online and saying, this is my right to be abusive. There needs to be a balance. At the moment, the balance of free speech is totally out of whack. You only have to read read Donald Trump's Twitter feed to understand that. So I would like to see more accountability, but not at the cost of people's right to express their opinion in a way that is not abusive and threatening.
2: Okay. And uh, just to put that to you, Anne hersiali we're in the era of accountability. And maybe that's about time that we rest the balance away from free speech. I just want
3: to, say, to state as clearly as I possibly can, that you cannot have accountability without free speech. Because you do have, for free speech, you have to articulate what a grievance is, what the problems are. And so if you want to hold people accountable, you have to have speech first. I also wanted to make it absolutely clear that people like David Starkey and Katie Hopkins, as much as you disagree with them, to call them far right and racist is insulting and it's abusive and it's wrong. I'm now holding you accountable. It is precisely to... This is what shuts down debate. By going around and calling people bigots only because you can't defend your position. Sorry.
5: No, it's because they're bigots. Uh, on you, oh, right.
4: you are trying to shut down the people who are trying to hold you to account. You are trying to deny them their right to free speech to hold you to account.
3: Hopkins can say what she wants. David Starkey can say what he wants. This and we is can
5: call him bigoted. bigoted
3: and the spirit of good faith and this is what's wrong about council culture there is no good faith it's all about shaming it's all about it's punitive it's about silencing people and it's wrong and we need to stop it
5: yeah we should all read my camp uh, put that on the reading list right so we can we can just make sure we get all the voices out there we I mean, come on it's this it's descriptive katie hopkins katie hopkins wouldn't know good faith if it better
4: in the ass I mean, you know, this is just ridiculous.
3: You don't, want to, you don't want people to think for themselves. You want to think for them. And that's what's wrong with cancel culture and the philosophy in which it is rooted.
5: It's ironic, given your lecturer doesn't how to think, isn't it? I mean, I think, look, I mean, I think we say it's a perfectly reasonable position to, to describe people's views as bigoted and racist. The idea that you shouldn't do that, that's, that's closing down free speech.
3: Cancel culture is about brainwashing. And if people refuse to be brainwashed, then they are silenced. You can't have accountability without free speech.
4: Julie, while we're talking, while we're chatting, Julie, does it, does it, you mentioned about Toby Young and that. Does it worry you that sometimes the people you find yourself on platforms with might be opposed to your views? I was re- thinking this week about the uh, death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg abortion rights are going to be a huge issue in the American election and some of the people that have been supportive of your position on trans rights are now going to be trying to deny women the right to abortion does it not trouble you that feminism is kind of drifting to the right
0: on this it troubles me massively and in fact I've just written a long essay about that saying why feminism has to be located on the left why we must not form alliances with bigots because within their anti-gay package they happen to have something that's anti-trans that might on paper correspond with our concerns as, as left-wing feminists about self-identification for men to use for women's shelters etc and i don't think that i no feminist worth her salt would ever join forces with those that seek to 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 threaten women's biological our our reproductive sovereignty etc so feminism has to be located on the left clearly all women can fight for their rights but to ally with with trumpites or those that actually are going to take our rights away on the other hand shows a lack of strategy and quite frankly it's politically abhorrent
2: all right. Thank you. I, I know we could carry on and Ayn hershey wants to even some disagreement within the two camps. But we do now have our results in. Let me just uh, remind you, the motion before us, the cancel culture, is threatening our freedoms. When you came to the debate or switched on for the motion, overwhelmingly, it was 73% for the motion, only 11% against, and undecided were 16 I can tell you that the undecideds have gone down from 16% to just 7%. And now the results are for the motion that council culture is threatening our freedoms, 77%. And against the motion, 16%. An increase from 11% to 16%. But the motion is emphatically carried that council culture is threatening our freedoms, as I say, 77% to 16% with just 7% undecided. I want to thank our, uh, all of you for uh, watching and for voting. Thank you, of course, to everyone at Intelligence Squared for putting together the debate. But I think you'll agree with me, those of you who are watching, that our chief thanks go to our four excellent speakers for debating so openly and, as you saw in our closing minutes, engaging with each other. So a warm thank you to Ian hersiali Ali, Billy Bragg, Julie Bindle and Kayinde Andrews. And as I say, again, thanks to all of you for watching and indeed to Intelligence Squared.